0: I when I was a kid and and into an adult adulthood really uh, I was enamored with this movie uh Back to the Future anybody a fan of Back to the Future Michael J Fox and uh and, and uh, fift, uh in 2015 they started talking about Back to the Future again and it was because in Back to the Future 2 they go to the future and they go to to the year 2015 so um it was uh it was fun to see that come back up, but I've got a story I want to tell you about that movie. When when I was uh, pretty young, probably about eight years old or so, uh, I was watching that movie in my uncle's basement in Chicago with, with my younger brother, and there's a scene in the movie where Michael J. Fox, it's before he travels through time at all, and he's driving really fast in the, in the DeLorean, and... Uh, and he's trying to outrun these, these, these robbers. And he starts speeding up. And, you know, if he goes a certain speed, then he'll, he'll go into the, the past in that one. And he, he, says, he says, let's see if these... And he uses the B word, the, the, the word that is the word for uh, if you don't have a dad. That word, that B word, right? And he says, let's see if they can do 70 or whatever the miles per hour were. And so me and my younger brother were imitating scenes from the movie, movie and we were running around in the basement saying, let's see these bees do 70. <laughs> and then we, we took that took that play playtime upstairs where the adults were. And uh, my younger brother was the one who first said uh, that phrase out loud. So he got stopped in his tracks. He wasn't doing 70 anymore. Um, and he was about to get... Uh, He's about to get a punishment that sent him back into the past. No, uh, they were like, you know, the, my uncle, my, my parents were like, you know, you can't say that word. That's, that's a bad word. And he didn't know, and I didn't know. And I was getting to watch him get blamed for something that I had also said several times a moment ago. But the thing is, even though he was saying an inappropriate word, he was completely unaware that that was the case. And right now in our culture, our culture is really confused in the United States and, 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 and other places as well, because things are changing so fast about what is acceptable in our culture, about who's right and who's wrong and what's been said. And there's this, this thing called cancel culture that's going on right now, right? Where, um, and it's happening a lot to high profile people, but it, but there's also a, A junior version of that for us normal people as well where we kind of cut people off and block people and there's public shaming on social media and things like that and so what I want to talk about today is is that whole transition around guilt and shame and and how we treat other people around the things that they've done wrong and I'm not going to be arguing. I'm not going to make anybody happy uh, in, in, in this uh, talk, in this sermon, uh, because uh, any of any of the distinct groups on the left or the right. Because I think the answer is is a lot more nuanced than that. But it's been something that is, has been very troubling to me. And at Christ City, we really try to be a place that holds a more nuanced tension. And I think that we can find that tension here in this passage and find some inspiration. Because what we see here is somebody becoming conscious of their guilt as well as the guilt of their tribe, their people, and actually coming out of it with a lot of freedom and new purpose. And so I think that can be something for us first to hold for ourselves And then if we can hold it for ourselves, we can allow it to transform the way we think about our own guilt, our own shame, then that can bring a lot of creative freedom into how we respond to other people when they are faced with their own guilt and shame, even if it's brought on by a confrontation from us. So let's take a look at these first four verses here. In the beginning, Isaiah tells us what time this is happening when he has, he doesn't call it a vision, he just says, I saw the Lord, when he has this encounter with God. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. And so this, this marks a time, it's about 750 B.C., and, um, and this was a time under a king that was very prosperous. Uh, so there was a lot, lot of, lot of uh, upticks in the economy uh, for uh, Israel during this time, and uh, this king's dead now, okay? And so then, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. There were seraphim, which are angels. Literally, that translates as like burning ones. And they've got these wings covering their feet and their faces. And they're flying. And they're crying out, holy, holy. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the doorposts and the thresholds are shaking. The temple is filled with smoke. So, this is a scene that Isaiah has as he's in the middle of bringing confrontation to the people of Judah and Israel. He has just spent five verses or five chapters talking to them about their sin, about their negligence, about the things that they've been doing wrong. Here's a couple of examples from the first chapter and the fourth chapter. The first chapter, he says in uh, talking from the position of of God sharing this. He's saying, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the causes of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Again, he says, you rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. In Isaiah 4, he says, woe to you who add house to house and join field to field, Till no space is left and you live alone in the land. So he's saying some pretty intense stuff here. He's talking about a lot of greed. He's talking about neglect of the marginalized of society. And then he kind of unexpectedly, all of a sudden, in the middle of this, five chapters of this, he encounters the Lord. And... Uh, It doesn't really go maybe the way that he thought it was or thought it would. You know I I see it written and I hear it a lot. I hear this well related to the things going on in our country um, or different people in positions of power you know that the Lord is still on the throne. You ever hear that or maybe you say that sometimes the Lord is still on the throne. But there's a marked difference between what plays out here in the passage with what Isaiah, how Isaiah actually seeing and encountering God on the throne to what most people seem to intend when they say that phrase, which is that means I get to be passive because my life and my circumstances aren't directly being impacted. I'm not in the, uh, the fatherless, the widow, those on the margins of society category. And so I can just kind of say, well, God's still on the throne and go about my life as if nothing has happened and nothing has changed. But Isaiah leaves this encounter extremely changed about how and in what ways will he interact with the people of God that he is called to represent and confront and be in relationship with. So, uh, in verse 4, it says some things that sound really cryptic to us, but make a lot of sense to the original readers of the time. In verse 4, it says, At the sound of their voices, the voices of the seraphim, the angels, the doorposts and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So, the doorposts and the threshold of the temple shook. If Isaiah was able to see those, that means he was encountering a visual encounter, a visual connection with God from the outside of the temple. He was looking in and seeing the throne of God, seeing the angel, seeing the train of the robe, and the doorposts and thresholds shook. And this is communicating that The holiness and the presence of God was something apart from Isaiah, other than Isaiah, and that the whole temple became filled with smoke, obscuring Isaiah's view of God. So, all at once, these two things happening are showing that Isaiah is completely separate from the holiness of this presence of God that he sees. Not only that, But what do you notice is completely absent in these first four verses in Isaiah's description of seeing the Lord. The Lord. The the Lord is never described. Just the things around the divine presence is being described. And so Isaiah, in the midst of this, is struck by and probably feels a lot of feels about his complete separateness From the presence of God. And this is good. This is absolutely essential, even to this whole conversation around cancel culture. Because Isaiah, at that moment, and he's about to talk about it, he's about to verbalize it, is struck by the fact that he is not God. This is a good thing. He is struck by the fact that the presence of God is notifying him that while he wants things to change, he wants things to be different, and he is doing something about it that he is extremely limited by what he cannot do, what he does not know. And this is part of what's lacking in this horrible lobbying of back and forth of us trying to uh, cancel each other and and canceling different people. Um, And I I wanna go ahead and say this, I'll talk more about this in a minute, but what I'm not saying is that people don't need to be held accountable for harmful actions. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that there is a way to do that that produces good in the world and not just speaks out against what we think Is evil and even in a subjective sense sometimes what we think people should be doing where those things are changing at a pace never before seen in humanity that we know of where there's just always new expectations of what is right or wrong and it could just be because a meme went viral and this is not going to change the world in a positive direction so Isaiah is being faced with freedom right now. Freedom from impossible expectations, first for himself and then for other people. He's being set free from the idea that if he can shame himself enough or bring enough control and willpower to his own life, then he could be found without sin and therefore he can treat other people in the same way, that they should as well be without sin, without shame. Have you ever exhausted yourself trying to change something about somebody else? You don't have to raise your hands because everybody has. We've all thought this thought in our mind and probably said it out loud at some point that if only this person would do X, my life would be okay. My life would work out. I probably do that at some point every week in my marriage with three little kids that uh, two of them wake up at 5.45 a.m. every day. I'm thinking if just something if this thing could change or if this response from this other person could change then things would be right things would work out but what the way we get free is not from out there those things changing it's not from harnessing perfection but it's from the admission that we are limited that we can have a healthy shame, that we are not God, and we are not meant to be God. This is what Isaiah is realizing in this moment, and he says this next in verse 5. He says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This this word ruined in the Hebrew that he's speaking from this is like this is like after you've been totally knocked out, killed, wiped out, and it's just quiet. Like that's what this that's what this word that, that's the, the picture that this Hebrew word means. It's like I've 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 been taken out and there's no sound happening because I'm not moving. I'm still I'm on the ground I've basically I've perished. This is his feeling that he gets in the presence of God when he says, I'm ruined. This is is a feeling that we can probably all relate to. It's sort of a mixture of shame and guilt that we feel when we become aware of our guilt. (laughs) I remember this time. uh, I was at a different uncle's house on the other side of my family, and we were in Milwaukee this time, and my uncle loved chess, my uncle Bill. And he had this really nice chess set. It was all marble, right? And one of the chess pieces went missing. And uh, me and my cousins, I mean, I had no idea. I didn't even play the chess game. I didn't mess with the chess pieces. But we were supposed to find that chess piece. And my Uncle Bill, eventually, he said, like, if you guys don't find this chess piece, you're getting lined up and you're getting spanked, and you're getting spanked with this belt right here. And he showed us the belt, and the belt had, like, uh, coins in the belt, like, like, sewn into the belt. And I tell you, friends, in my little eight-year-old self, the doorposts and the thresholds were shaking. I was becoming aware of something, even though I didn't necessarily do anything. I was part of the collective of people that were guilty. And I felt that I was ruined, that I was undone. And I bet you can relate to those moments where all of a sudden you became aware of something that you had done that hurt or harmed another individual. And this is the moment, this is the moment it's an ordinary moment, but it is the place where our paths diverge in different ways because what Isaiah chooses to do is to confess, but oftentimes that's not what we choose to do. We are afraid to do it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's because sometimes it hits us after the fact. It's like a it's like DOMS, delayed o- onset of muscle soreness, right? But I call it DOGS, delayed onset of guilty uh, wait, situations. That's what it is. So we can't make some of these things right. And here's what we can do. We can head into a deep state of toxic shame. And two of these positions keep us... Uh, or two ways that this can happen can keep us not free, can keep us bound. And unfortunately, in our language, we only have one word for shame. But I'm talking about shame in two different ways. Most languages have at least two ways to talk about shame. The, 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 one, the first way is the way I talked about it just a moment ago, a healthy understanding of our limitations, that we are not God. But the second way is a toxic way of understanding shame, where one of two things occur. The first thing that I wanna talk about is that we begin to uh, bring that guilty sense of what we've done wrong into ourselves and it becomes a part of our identity. It begins to shape who we are. Instead of I've done something wrong, it's I am something wrong. And so we begin to see the world that way because if that's true of us, then it must be true of other people. And so if we've done certain things wrong, then we have to hide and squirrel away those parts of ourselves and disassociate that part of ourselves. And it could be a very important part of ourselves. It could be the, our, our sexual part of ourselves. It could be the part of us that gives us anger and passion. It could be the part that gives us joy and celebration. And we begin to cut that part off from ourselves, and then when we look out and we see somebody else guilty of something, we seek to do the same thing to them that we've done to ourselves. The other way that we have this toxic sense of dealing with guilt, this toxic shame that emerges that I wanna talk about is we convince ourselves we haven't done anything wrong. We move into a state of denial We become shameless. We become those who cannot be held accountable. And the same result happens. We see ourselves as high and lifted up, morally superior, and thus have even more right to be more angry at those people out there that aren't doing the things that we think are right. Toxic ways of operating and dealing that I'm guilty of, and most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have vacillated back and forth between these responses at different times. Here's the thing. When we do that, we're dehumanizing ourselves and other people. And we will never be able to to lift up another group of people, another gender, another tribe, another group of people by dehumanizing another. That is the lie that our culture is obsessed with believing right now, that we can belittle and demean men in order to lift up women, or we can belittle and demean people who identify as white in order to lift up black people, and so on and so forth. It goes on and on and on, and it spirals, and nothing good ever comes out of those types of things, and we're stuck. And I would love to say, yes, the church is the beacon of hope in this situation. And far more often, the church has been extremely guilty. And so we need people like Isaiah. We need events like the events that Isaiah has encountered here in order to sh- change and shift the conversation into something that can actually move us forward into humanizing all of us. Because shame is good. Knowing our limits is good. When we meet God, if you think that you've met God, if you've encountered God, a a test for you is to know, have you felt right-sized by that encounter? Did you feel emboldened to go around and just tell everybody what to do and feel shameless? Or did you feel in awe of something greater than yourself, of something that you could be caught up in, of something that allowed you to just be a person? Uh, this, uh, this woman, Cassie J., she did this TED talk, and, and she, she talks about being a feminist who'd made these documentaries about feminism, and then she decided she was going to do a documentary on, on the men's rights movement, and she thought, oh, I'm going to do this documentary, and I'm going to get them. Like, I'm going to expose them, and that's what she went in doing it. She interviewed hundreds of people, hundreds of men that were part of this men's rights movement, And she talks about this process of her hearing things that she wanted to hear that they weren't saying. And that when she went back and had to transcribe all of the things that she heard, she realized that she was trying to judge them for things that they weren't communicating. Because she had thought that if she could toxically shame these men for holding the views that they did, that she could elevate women. And she found that wasn't true she found that these men were concerned with valid issues of men's rights. This hardcore feminist woman did. And so she began to speak about this and write about this, and guess who shut her down and canceled her? The feminists did. You see, men's rights is not a bad thing, and women's rights are not a bad thing. But if one has to be devalued and toxically shamed in order to elevate the other, then all you end up doing is fighting in a big circle. And I don't think that's what anybody actually wants. I don't think that's what we, what we want to happen in our culture and society. So then, what, what do we do? What do we do as people of faith right now in the midst of all this, because surely We can't just think if we jump into that scenario or continue in it, if we're already in it, that that's really going to bring about the kind of world and future and society that any of us really want to live in. So let's go back to this crazy scene here in verse six where the seraphim are flying. So here's, here's what happens in the Hebrew. So in verse five, Uh, in in the Hebrew language that this was written in. In verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In verse 6, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew. And the way that the Hebrew verbs are constructed there is to say, as soon as those words left Isaiah's lips, That seraphim was flying forward with this coal, right? Which sounds like an awfully scary, terrible thing. But actually, uh, for the Hebrew people, this was a really great thing. So we see the coal coming. And in verse 7, with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Isaiah is hit with a deep sense of his shame, of that he is not God. And in it, he becomes aware of something very specific. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips from a group of people with unclean lips. So he identifies personally with a specific guilt and collectively with his tribe of the same guilt. You know what I find very interesting is that unclean lips, did you hear that in any of the things that I read that he was talking about to his people about? No, it was like being greedy and taking taking advantage of uh, people and doing all this kind of stuff. It really wasn't that much about that. But what happened for Isaiah is that when he was in the divine presence, what was holding him back, what he, whether he knew it or not, was feeling deep guilt about came to the surface. And you see, everybody has a story like this. Everybody has things that have shaped their perspective and their identity. And that's the energy that we use to go out and shame and cancel other people. It's our own guilt and shame within us. But here we see, what did Isaiah, what is transforming Isaiah to the point where still standing in the presence of divineness, aware of his shame, what changes him to allow him to say, here I am, I'll go, send me, God, I can do the work. Is Is it that God canceled him and said, well, since you're guilty of these things, you're relegated to the corner of society, disappear, essentially. That's what we're telling people. We're telling them, disappear, go away, because that's what we feel with our own shame. But no, Isaiah tastes forgiveness. The moment he is able to confess his guilt and his sin, he is forgiven. He is cleansed. This is a powerful thing it's so it seems like such a simple thing and yet we have yet to grasp it we have yet to grasp it as a group of people we've we've yet to properly understand what it means to forgive and to be forgiven how do i know that because of the discourse because of the 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 hiding and the and the putting away of one another and huge chunks of ourselves Here's, here's something, uh, I want to I try to parse this out as, as we're getting to the end here. Um, there's a, a, a guy who wrote a book in the 80s uh, on shame. It's called uh, Healing the Shame that Binds Us. It's by a guy named John Bradshaw. He's the OG uh, of, uh, of, what's her name, Renee Brown, okay? And he says this, this is, I'm, I'm going to have to parse this out. He says, healthy guilt is moral shame. He says, healthy guilt is moral shame. So when we feel a healthy sense that we've done something wrong, what we're also encountering within us is the shame that we are morally imperfect. The shame of that, the shame of our limitedness, So guilt gives us the gift when we allow it to do what it does to say you were always meant to have to get and give forgiveness. Why would you ever come to the place where you thought perfection for not having to forgive, not having to ask for forgiveness was going to help you and the world in any way, shape, or form? When, when this is given and received, when we open ourselves up to feeling guilty and to confessing our guilt to God and to one another, we experience freedom. And with that freedom, that energy that's been tied up in all of those toxic shames that go in and out, in and out, we can begin to come up with more creative solutions in our world for our own lives, for other people's lives. Have you ever experienced that where you, you finally say you're sorry, you've been fighting it, you've been looking for every, any other path and then you finally just say I'm sorry and you feel like a literal ton of bricks falls off your back. You can breathe, you can think about other things, right? This is, this is the only way out that I could see of. Something like what we're experiencing right now. Where we want to block everybody who uh, we want them to become more aware of their shame and their guilt than they have. And our, our goal of doing that is to try to toxically shame them more. And how'd that work out for you when somebody did that to you? Did that, did that help you grow into a more mature, loving person? Right? Ah, I still fall into, I fall into it trying to shame one of my children, you know, and, and, and try to get them to do right through shame. And I'm like, that doesn't work. I know it doesn't work. The path out is this. It's to seek the presence of God and allow God to let us become aware of our guilt and our shame, to, to ask for forgiveness, to receive forgiveness and to extend that forgiveness to others. Of course, this and that person you're thinking of doesn't deserve forgiveness. That's what forgiveness is. And that's what we were meant to do. That seraphim was real busy floating around saying, holy, 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 flying and covering stuff and opening stuff up with wings and all this kind of stuff. Until Isaiah said, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Confess. And all of a sudden, boom, was ready. God was just waiting, waiting for us to get free, waiting for us to confess our guilt, to let our toxic shame be healed. So, uh, so so that I could I could go around and, and and say the say the B word without fear. I didn't have to hide. I have to hide my language, uh, knowing that uh, I might say the wrong thing, because that's what ends up happening. You know, people just hide more. That's a change society. You just put people in corners. Just you just try to put different ones in corners. Right? I say that as someone extremely aware of the hurt and the harm that has happened. But the only path, only viable path for a creative and more loving society and future is forgiveness. So As we come to the table, as we come to the table, what we're coming for is is many things. But this morning, what I want you to remember and think about as you come for is that you have access to a God who is ready to see your guilt, help you to see it, help you to see the shame, the toxicity of the shame you've. You've built with it or others have built with it for you and is ready to forgive you, ready to give you freedom from those things. Okay? So with that, let's go ahead and come to the table. Lord, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for hope. Thank you for um, forgiveness. In and through Jesus. Jesus. Amen.